X-ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's April 24th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day, April 24th, 1704, the first regular newspaper in British colonial America, the Boston Newsletter, was published. And in 1990, the Space Shuttle Discovery blasted off from Cape Canaveral, carrying the Hubble Space Telescope. What's the Hubble Space Telescope done for us? Well, it found objects of similar size to Pluto past Pluto, which demoted Pluto to dwarf planet status. Previously, we just thought the gamma ray bursts were the result of Bruce Banner's experiments. Hubble also helped construct the largest scale 3D maps scientists have of where dark matter is distributed in the universe. That might help us figure out what the heck dark matter is. And the Hubble discovered that gamma ray bursts typically occur in galaxies that are low in elements heavier than helium. Previously, we just thought the gamma ray bursts were the result of Bruce Banner's experiments. And it's X-Ray's Fun Drive. I want to give a shout-out to Tom Dwyer Automotive. They're going to donate 50 bucks to anybody who shouts out the local and becomes a member of X-Ray during the drive. You can talk to a live human being by calling 503-233-X-Ray. Or you can use the interwebs, x-ray.fm. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, our update from Alex Zelensky of the Portland Mercury, and an interview with Mike Schmidt, candidate for Multnomah County District Attorney and someone who has never played third base for the Phillies. It really is kind of a choice that Multnomah County has not had in decades to choose what type of a criminal justice system uh, you'd like to see. One that is focused on reform and, and changing the way things are done or the status quo. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Oregon has been one of five states with no limits on campaign contributions. As we reported in yesterday's episode of The Local, the Supreme Court was going to rule, and they did indeed rule, for the first time that campaign contribution limits are legal in Oregon. Back in 2018, 89% of Multnomah County voters approved $500 limits per individual donor for each race. Judge Block in Multnomah County set aside that rule, and now the rule looks to be back in play. The court set the case back to the trial court to decide whether the limits are too stringent and might violate federal free speech protections. The ruling could lead to new campaign finance limits throughout the state. And this is a state where state legislative races can cost a million dollars, where the governor's race costs $40 million. We're one of the more expensive states for campaigns in the country, and we're not one of the biggest or richest states. Other questions surround Measure 47. Oregon voters approved that back in 2006. It was a $500 limit on donations to statewide candidates and a $100 limit on other state and local races. But those were never allowed to go into effect. The Supreme Court had previously put Measure 47 on hold, but it said it would immediately take effect if another landmark 1997 ruling, Van Atta v. Kiesling, was ever, and I'm quoting, overruled to a sufficient degree. Yesterday's opinion certainly disavows Van Atta's reasoning. So the court's new ruling at least opens the way for supporters to argue for the imposition of those Measure 47 limits. And be aware we'll continue to follow this story because almost certainly now what's going to happen is big donor groups are going to get together and encourage the legislature to refer something other than Measure 47 to the voters. And the question will be, is it more like fake campaign finance reform or just something that sort of seems like it? In our daily dose of data, as of Thursday, state and local health officials reported Oregon's confirmed case total of COVID-19 cases to 2,127 
with 83 related deaths. And a handful of grocery workers have confirmed cases. An employee at the Pearl District Whole Foods has died from the virus. The store confirmed on Wednesday. It is unknown what role the individual had at the store. Another worker at the Hollywood location has tested positive for the virus. Fred Meyer announced last month an employee working at its Northeast Gleason store tested positive. That employee has not been to work since March 10th. And earlier this month, Winco announced that three of its workers in two Oregon stores had tested positive. And on the other side of the wall, the latest available data from the Washington Department of Health reports 12,494 diagnosed cases of COVID-19 and 692 related deaths. And back to the Oregon Employment Department. Another 37,000 Oregonians filed new jobless claims last week, bringing total job losses over the five weeks of the coronavirus outbreak to 334,000. That's a third of a million people. It's also 17% of the state's workforce. One in six Oregon jobs altogether. I could do fractions all day. The number of new claims actually fell for the second week in a row, but remains at a historic level. The antiquated system has produced a bunch of errors. On Wednesday, the department said the system accidentally double-paid federally authorized bonus checks to some unemployed Oregonians this month. To fix the mistake, the department withheld the $600 checks from more than 10,000 laid-off workers, which confounded many who had received $1,200 just previously. The antiquated system has also prevented the state from waiving the one-week waiting period for new jobless claims. Facing pressure last week, the governor said the state will ultimately implement that waiver and pay claims for that waiting week retroactively. Note that claims may spike again in the coming weeks as the state begins processing filings for self-employed workers. And the Employment Department on Wednesday announced it's working to streamline claims for gig workers and small business owners through a new processing claim center. They said that system will be in place within the next two weeks. Bon chance. And Governor Kate Brown has unveiled the plan for lifting restrictions on hospitals starting next month. Governor Brown announced Thursday she plans to reopen hospitals to non-essential surgical procedures. Restrictions will be lifted as long as they reserve enough hospital beds and protective gear for any surge in coronavirus cases. Across the nation, governors put a stop to elective procedures to free up hospital beds for a spike and to preserve PPE for healthcare workers. Note that these aren't just tummy tucks and facelifts we're talking about with these surgeries. They can include hip replacements, gallbladder removal, or other non-emergent, including major corrective surgeries. On Thursday, Brown likened her latest order to testing frozen ice. You take a small step, put your weight on it, and pause. She warned there is a chance we would need to reverse course, saying we're only stepping onto the ice carefully and cautiously, one step at a time. Oregon highway traffic is down, but the throughput on I-5 is up during rush hour, and it might be a clue to what might happen if we dealt with the demand. Here's what I'm talking about. Overall, Oregon highway traffic is down 40% from this time last year. But there are actually more vehicles getting through the notorious I-5 Rose Quarter Corridor at the peak hours. They're able to pass through at nearly double the speed. The bottleneck doesn't occur because there's not enough congestion. Urban economist Joe Courtright suggests that decrease in traffic demonstrates our reality if tolls were put on Portland highways. Quoting him, the implication is clear. We could make the congestion problem go away, even when things get back to normal by managing demand. But, of course, the Oregon Transportation Commission recently voted for another option, to add more lanes to the Rose Quarter corridor. Again, Courtright, quoting, 
Highways are incredibly important, expensive asset that work better when you manage them. If you were running a restaurant, you wouldn't just throw a bunch of raw steaks on the table and open the door. But that's what we're doing with I-5. And some giggles and cupcakes. Here's something that might boost your morale. A new survey showing that 82% of Oregonians, a strong majority of both Democrats and Republicans and non-affiliated voters, support the state's stay-at-home orders. No word on how many Oregonians think you should inject yourself with detergent. But no doctors have suggested that you should inject yourself with detergent. And relatedly, a survey showed that 87% of American adults either felt social distancing measures in their state were appropriate or didn't go far enough. And again, no doctors are saying you should inject yourself with detergent. Don't inject yourself with any detergent. Hmm. And starting on Monday, Portland families can apply for $250 gift cards. Those Visa gift cards will be provided to over 700 low-income families on a first-come, first-served basis. The money form comes from the Portland Housing Bureau's budget to cover cash assistance for residents. That's costing about $200,000. The other $800,000 is being given to 19 local nonprofits who serve communities of color, people with disabilities, people experiencing homelessness, immigrants and refugees, domestic violence survivors, and at-risk youth. Those groups will provide up to $500 per household to people already in their networks. Applications are being accepted by 211-INFO, a nonprofit that contracts with the city to provide information and referral services. Folks can apply either by calling 211 or filling out an online application at 211info.org forward slash COVID-19. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. I'm Jefferson Smith, and you're listening to The Local. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. Now, Alex Zelensky from the Portland Mercury. Alex is back to discuss campaign finance developments in Portland, and there are a lot of them to talk about this week. Alex is on the trail. Alex, how you holding up? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? My heart is filled with gratitude. That is the dominant, that that is my regular and dominant emotion. Occasionally I get a little bummed out. I have a hard time sleeping. My schedule's messed up, whatever. You know, trying to, you know, trying to work to make sure this organization can stick through the tough times that are happening and the tough times ahead. Lots, but most of what I am is just full of gratitude. Where do you want to start with the news? You want to talk about campaign finance reform and what's been happening with the mayor? Well, some breaking news just came out regarding campaign finance. Oh, the, the Supreme Court rule? Yeah. Oh, what they rule? Yeah. <laughs> Drum roll. They, they ruled uh, to uphold uh, the campaign finance rules. But, oh, but, my goodness. And, that mean, and, yeah. by, and, and to be clear, to be clear, this is breaking yeah. news. We put it on the local this morning. They were ruling today. Now we have the breaking news. This is, uh-huh. uh, this, thank you for breaking that news. Yeah, the Supreme course. Court has issued this order. And by uphold, you mean overturned the lower court ruling and saying that the right. city and county measure, I guess this is specific about the county measure. The county's that, measure. Wow. Right, mm-hmm. That's yeah. amazing. It's huge. And it, of course, it's in the middle of a election. Um, where, you know, uh, definitely at least the incumbent mayor in the race has not been following those rules at all. Um, and, uh, you know, the limitations that have been uh, laid out in that plan. But, and, and so right now, I mean, I don't really have as many answers that I wish I did right now, just because this is breaking news. But uh, we're trying to figure out if that will impact um, his ability to that will change anything about, you know, his ability to collect money right now. Earlier in the campaign when he said he wasn't going to um, 
follow the campaign finance restrictions that were you know approved by voters but then were challenged by uh lobbyist groups and you know business groups and and renter or landlord groups um that he was not going to follow them um because they were held up in court uh and the city's elections office said that's fine we're not going to you know we're not going to enforce those until those decisions are actually upheld or figured out um but now that those now that the Supreme Court has made a decision uh, in the midst of all this, it's, it'll be interesting to hear how that will really impact stuff going forward. I mean, I can't imagine that um, the mayor or anyone who's not participating in either the Open and Accountable Elections Program or just limiting campaign uh, funds in general, I can't imagine that they're going to continue accepting really large donations after, now that this has been passed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, a lot of question marks, but um, progress. Other campaign um, finance issues that have been brought up in the last couple of days, um, Mayor Ted Wheeler, uh, who is obviously running for uh, re-election and has decided to not follow the campaign finance uh, rules that were because they were being uh, ironed out in the court, he, uh, he was hit by three different uh, campaign or election violations by the city's election department for not um, for not listing on his website and on his uh, social media accounts that uh, not listing who his top donors were um, and what industries they were from, which is part of uh, actually part of this campaign finance um, measure that's being upheld, but a piece of it that um, is not being challenged. So basically, if you're not if you're not uh, limiting yourself to um, low campaign or low donations and a certain, you know, capping the amount that you get from each donor, then you have to list on your site uh, and on your, you know, in any communication that you have with voters who your top top five donors are and what industries they come from and, and you know, how they're making income or who they represent. Uh, and, and the mayor um, didn't have that on any of his, his pages. And so, uh, the elections department uh, gave him a warning. It apparently has been changed. He's he's updated, uh, uh, you know, these these uh, violations and and fixed the errors. But it did not uh, did not look great, especially because his campaign's answer was kind of like, "Well, we didn't know we needed to do that." Or, yeah. What do you make yeah. of what do you make of the campaign answer? So, well, now it's it, this applies to everybody. We thank we appreciate. I thought it was a pretty smart response. We appreciate the clarification. Uh, what do you? How do you characterize the response? It's tricky because, you know, obviously they they did exactly what they were supposed to do in response by um, quickly changing, you know, ma- making those corrections. I think people expect uh, the mayor and his campaign to be more on top of those things. And right now, especially since he's such a uh, he's a perceived front runner in this race. Uh, it kind of gives the idea that he's, you know, um, maybe not taking it as seriously as he should be and following all the rules that he should be. Um, it was, it did not look great that right after um, these violations were made public, there was a mayoral debate where he, um, you know, live streamed uh, a mayoral debate where he, you know, basically said, hey, no one else is following these rules either. Um, which uh, the elections office kind of sent a press release last night uh, letting everyone know that the mayor was incorrect in saying that uh, and that he was actually the only one who was 
not following those rules, um, which is like, I don't know, it's kind of petty political or politics going up to the election, especially since it's not, you know, it's not a huge bungle, but um, it just doesn't look great. Any indication you y'all reported on his biggest givers? I don't know if you have that information in front of you. If you I want do. to give yeah. that, but yeah, who are if he's now going to disclose? Because again, the Oregon Supreme Court has now ruled the uh, there's going to be a change in campaign finance rules, or in fact, the change that was passed for the county and the city will presumably now be put into place. We'll see when when the implementers decide that's going to happen. But the other piece is the disclosure rules, which right now they ought to be in place and people ought to be following them. And the mayor was deemed to have violated them. And you're supposed to. And so, yeah, explain. You're supposed to list how yeah. many of your candidates and then who, who do you have? No, your donors. Go ahead. Yeah, you're supposed to list your top, uh, your biggest, five biggest donors, um, you know, cumulative donations um, and, and then kind of what industry or what, um, you know, where they've been employed and how these people have made money, basically. Uh, you don't need to you don't need to list how much they've given you, um, but I will include it just to make it more fun. Um, so for Mayor Wheeler, which I um, I actually don't I haven't looked at his website, but I, apparently this is on there. Uh, his top donations are from um, uh, electricians um, pack, so kind of like a well electrician union pack. So. Um, a, uh, and they've given $95,000, um, a venture capitalist investor uh, who's donated 43000 um, and a commercial real estate company given them $31,000, uh, Realtor PAC, Portland Metropolitan Association of Realtors PAC, which given $25,000, and then the, his kind of fifth largest donor is a tie between seven different groups, uh, including American Beverage Association, uh, an, an attorney, and, and multiple leaders in kind of real estate and manufacturing industries, uh, Firefighters Pack, um, Kroger, which, you know, owns Fred Meyer. Uh, so big, big business. Um, and, you know, it's, it's not surprising. It shows you kind of what who's in his corner and who's, uh, you know, hoping that he will be reelected. Um, but it adds adds context to, to, to the race. Alex Zelensky, it is marvelous to have a chance to talk to you on this historic day and to have you break the news for us. Yeah, an honor to do it on air. Next up is an interview with Mike Schmidt, candidate for Multnomah County District Attorney. Mike and I discuss his reform platform, his plans for transparency in office, and the job description of the Multnomah County District Attorney. We also covered endorsements from animals. It's true. Check it out. Oregon district attorneys are elected in every county and serve four-year terms. This election cycle, Multnomah County is voting for a district attorney to fill the role when current DA Rod Underhill retires. Mike Schmidt has over two decades of experience as a prosecutor, and now he's running for that Multnomah County DA position. Good morning, Mike. Hey, good morning, Emily. Welcome to X-Ray. We are excited that you are here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. First off, tell us, who are you and why are you running? Yeah, so like you said, my name's Mike Schmidt, uh, and I am first and foremost a a father of two boys and a husband who's lived in southeast Portland. 
Um, but I'm running because I believe that our criminal justice system needs major reform now. Uh, and so my background is really in that. You know, I started off as a public high school teacher uh, in New Orleans where I saw my kids uh, be witnesses to crime, victims of crime, children of incarcerated parents, uh, and sometimes defendants. So I really got to see the school to prison pipeline up close, and it made me want to get involved into the criminal justice system. Uh, so I went and got a job at the Multnomah County District Attorney's Office. I prosecuted there from 2007 to 2013. Uh, and although I felt like I was doing good work, I knew I wasn't really changing the system. Uh, so I jumped out. I went to the legislature, and then for the last about seven years, I've been at a, a state agency and been the director of a state agency uh, called the Criminal Justice Commission, uh, where we do criminal justice reform work, uh, working on how can we keep communities safer by making investments into the things that drive crime. So how can we deal with mental health uh, issues? How can we deal with drug addiction? Uh, and instead of just warehousing people in prison for a couple of years, uh, but actually treat and look at the root causes of the problems uh, and work on those things. So that's why I'm running for DA. You know, I think there's a lot of things at stake in this race. Uh, I think we need a district attorney who will stand up to ICE and immigration, protect our immigration communities, our immigrant communities. Uh, I think we need somebody who will hold police officers accountable when they break the law. They have an incredibly hard job to do, and most of them do it uh, dramatically well. But as we can see with the West Lynn uh, Police Department and the Michael Fesser case going on right now, sometimes police officers cross that line and, and they need to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, I think we need to give people hope. When they get caught up in the criminal justice system, it can lead to hopelessness. And when that happens, people lose uh, the reason why they want to reform and rehabilitate. So we need to give them a chance. If they do the work, stop committing crime, stop getting arrested, do the treatment, we need to be there for them to expunge their old drug convictions so that they can get housing and jobs. Mm. Uh, so there's a lot of things uh, to do in this race, and that's why I'm running. Mm. I was reading some analysis in the Portland Tribune, and they characterized this race as two candidates who are opposites. Do you think that that's a fair analysis of you and your competitor and what you're running for? Yeah, yeah, I really do. Um, I think, you know, what's at stake in this race is really change, in a word. Uh, you know, my opponent is a career prosecutor. Uh, everything he's done in his entire career has just been prosecution. Uh, that's not me. Uh, I did that. I have that experience. I've driven a caseload. I've worked on felony crimes. I've been in drug courts. I've worked on behalf of victims to get them restitution, uh, get them compensated for their loss. Uh, so I've done that work. But I think importantly, I've gotten out of that system. And it's given me a much broader perspective about what this job really is about. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's looking at things like how does the choices the district attorney makes interact with our foster care system? Because I tell you what, if you send a, pr a parent to prison, you're adding a child to the foster care system. Uh, how does it interact with our health care system? You know, when we see that our jails and our prisons are our biggest homeless shelters and mental health and addiction treatment facilities in the state, you know that we've been doing things the wrong way for a long time. Uh, and the district attorney gets to play a role in those things. So, yes, I think uh, there's a lot at stake in this race. Um, we are uh, a couple opposites. It really is kind of a choice that Multnomah County has not had and in decades uh, to choose what type of a criminal justice system uh, you'd like to see, one that is focused on reform uh, and, and changing the way things are done or the status quo. Mm. 
what are some of the primary ways that you want to reform this system in, let's say, your first year as a district as a as a district attorney? Sure. So there's two real levels to this. Um, as the Multnomah County District Attorney, you are the leader of the largest district attorney's office in the state. And what that means is that the legislature looks to you, the governor's office looks to you to be a leader on criminal justice policy. So on the one level, I wanna be an advocate for statewide criminal justice reform. And I started off this race talking about how I won't seek the death penalty. Mm. Uh, I would be the first prosecutor in the state to, to take that pledge. Uh, and fundamentally it's because one, we don't actually, there's a moratorium on the death penalty in Oregon right now. Uh, so we don't actually use it. And those cases are incredibly expensive to pursue. So it's a waste of money. I'd rather have that money freed up and be spent on victim services than to pursue a penalty that we know we're not going to impose anyway. Uh, and quite frankly, sometimes we get it wrong. Uh, nationally, we see that one in nine people sentenced uh, to a death sentence end up getting exonerated because of actual innocence. So the state messes up sometimes. Uh, I've talked about how we need to end cash bail. Um, holding somebody in jail before they're convicted of anything just because they don't have any money or they don't have the resources to post, you know, a couple hundred dollars in bail just fundamentally is not a fair system. It treats different people unequally. So if you have money, you get to get out. But if you don't, you get held. That's not fair. We need to get rid of anywhere in our system where money makes a determination on what kind of justice you receive. Uh, I've talked about mandatory sentencing. You know, the, the voters in Oregon uh, adopted Measure 11 back in uh, 1994. Uh, and what that did is it shifted the power uh, to decide what the sentence would be away from judges into prosecutors. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's the way our system should work. I think prosecutors should go in the courtroom and make their best arguments. Defense attorneys should make their best arguments. Judges should hear from victims. And they should be able to, on a case-by-case -case basis, make their best uh, judgment in terms of what a sentence should be. I think we need to shift that discretion back to judges. So those are a lot of the statewide uh, policy things that are at issue. Uh, in Multnomah County, locally, what you can expect to see if I get elected uh, is gonna be uh, transparency, like hasn't been seen before in district attorney's offices. Uh, at my statewide commission job, I've built dashboards so that you can go online and actually see in real time the data of who's getting arrested and convicted and incarcerated in Oregon's systems. But the, the missing piece of information in that has been what happens in prosecutor agencies. You know, I want to fix that. I want to be one of the first in the country to make district attorney prosecutorial data uh, transparent so that the public can actually see what's going on. So that'll be one of my big projects uh, right out of the gate is to, to work on doing that. Obviously, it requires a budget and resource to do that. And mm -hmm. You know, where you might be coming on some hard budgetary times uh, due to the COVID crisis that, that we're in right now. But that is going to be one of my priorities uh, is, is building that transparency and legitimacy into our local county office. Mm. How do you manage your own bias, bias stay, keep it at the forefront so that you're aware of where bias might show up? Yeah, you know, for me, it, it, and like everybody, right, I think it's, a, it's an ongoing, ever proactive uh, learning effort. Uh, so part of it starts with uh, who you surround yourself with uh, and, and making sure that, you know, your friends and the people you associate with uh, will represent a, a broader 
uh, patch diversity. I think it's about educating yourself and taking it upon yourself uh, to do the work um, and, and not just expect other people to educate you, but to actually yourself go out and you know, read books like White Fragility, for example, is one that I've read recently in the last uh, year or so. Um, and there's a lot of great resources and literature out there for people. Um, you know, one of the experiences I have at the Criminal Justice Commission was reading The New Jim Crow uh, by Michelle Alexander uh, and looking and talking about how the war on drugs has disproportionately impacted minority communities. Well, as a leader in the Criminal Justice Commission, I had my staff read that book. And then we applied her lessons and what she's seen nationally to Oregon locally to see if we see the exact same disparity that she was talking about in her book. And, and we did. You know, so some of it, a lot of it is um, being proactive, uh, educating yourself. Um, for me, it's also been, uh, I've had the privilege of going around uh, not only our country, but uh, also the world to see how different states and different countries uh, do criminal justice. I got to go visit uh, the Angola prison in Louisiana, which used to be a slave plantation. Uh, and I tell you, when you go and see that, you can really see how the roots of slavery have continued on into the criminal justice system. Uh, I got to go to Norway and see how they do uh, criminal justice completely differently uh, and how they have a completely different reproach that is all about rehabilitation and a lot less about punishment. And they get much, they get much better results than we do and they incarcerate a lot less. Mm. So, you know, I think it's all of those things. It's, it's being open to how other people are doing things, how other cultures are doing things. Uh, it's learning, taking, being proactive learner, um, encouraging your staff to do the same, uh, and, you know, getting out and making sure that you have those associations uh, that people can call you on and, and, and make sure that, uh, you know, you're not missing things. Mm. Mike, do you have chickens? <laughs> I do have chickens. They were just being noisy in the backyard. <laughs> hey, when you're running a campaign, you got to bring in a lot of constituents to help get it done. And I, I appreciate that you've, you've enrolled chickens into your campaign. I was just endorsed by a hedgehog the other day on social media. So, really? you know, my, my uh, animal game is strong right now. <laughs> Tell us about endorsements. How important are endorsements in this race? And who are some of the folks that are endorsing you that you're proud of? You know, I think endorsements, especially in a race like this, are, are absolutely crucial. Uh, you know, uh, for better or worse, a lot of folks uh, don't really know what a district attorney is or does or how important it is uh, to elect this position. So um, endorsements really are that kind of um, legitimizer in the community, and I'm so proud to be endorsed. Uh, yesterday we rolled out probably my biggest endorsement uh, of the campaign, which was Governor Kate Brown. Uh, endorsing me in this race, which is really just a unique thing uh, to, to have the governor uh, endorse, in, endorse in a local um, county election. Uh, but I'm very proud of not only the elected officials who are endorsing me, which is many, uh, pretty much most of them that are, represent any place uh, in Portland or in Multnomah County, I have their endorsements. Uh, I'm very proud of being endorsed by labor. Uh, a lot of labor organizations like AFSCME and AFL-CIO uh, the grocers who are frontline heroes uh, among many others right now, uh, union, they've endorsed me. So a lot of uh, labor, the carpenters, uh, and then uh, the community groups, which some of them I've ticked off uh, mm -hmm. already, um, Safety and Justice, uh, PAC, and then um, Latino Network and Apano and Pacoon and, and East County Rising, uh, you know, representing out there on the East County in Gresham. Um, and so... 
And then just community members. You know, lots of community members have signed on. Uh, lots of uh, attorneys who practice law. They understand what this job is about, uh, both defense attorneys and prosecutors. Uh, I have the sheriff, uh, Mike Reese, the entire county commission, uh, commissioners uh, Joanne Hardesty and Chloe Daly. Um, so really is just an incredibly broad coalition of community-minded people, uh, activists, grassroots uh, folks. Um, we've had a ton of individual donor support. Um, you know, I think we've got almost twice as many individual donors as my opponent uh, because this is really a community uh, grassroots campaign. So the the endorsements are, are really incredible and, and I'm really honored to, to have them, but I think it's also going to tell you where my focus is going to be, where, who I'm going to be working with once I'm elected. Mm. Mike, how can listeners learn more about your candidacy and support your work? Yeah, thank you. So uh, we have a website, uh, www.mikeschmidt4da.com. Uh, we are on Facebook. We are on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Uh, we, I've been now on uh, several podcasts, uh, other radio interviews like this, so you can check those out. Uh, I've probably been in, I think, five candidate debates at this point. A lot of those are online. Uh, and if you go to our social uh, media pages, you'll be able to find links to those. Um, been a lot of articles written about this race. So, yeah, I really encourage uh, folks to, to go to the website, check out the social media, you know, uh, read up. This is really a, you know, quite frankly, um, the DA before Rod Underhill was a man named Mike Shrunk. Uh, he was first elected in 1981. Um, we really have not had a contested DA's race, a truly contested DA's race since before then. So this is uh, almost a four decades long uh, opportunity. So for some of us, this is a once in a lifetime uh, race to, to make this decision. So I, I really encourage folks to, to read about it, learn as much as you can. Uh, and if you agree with my idea that we need change in our criminal justice system, that reform matters, uh, please consider supporting. Uh, you know, the only way that I can get the word out is to do shows like this. But also, um, you know, we have to have a, a campaign to, you know, get lawn signs and, and media and all of those things. So if you appreciate the message, um, tell your friends and, and help us spread the word. Excellent. Mike, thank you so much for joining us on X-Ray. Hey, thanks so much, Emily. Really appreciate it. Have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Again, that's Mike Schmidt. Candidate for Multnomah County District Attorney. You can find out more at Mike Schmidt for FORDA.com. Thanks to Alex and Mike for joining the local, and thank you for listening to the local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Again, we'd love your support for the work at X Ray. Please become a member at 15 bucks a month. You'll get a cool new shirt or a record tote. You can go to xray.fm. You can call 503-233-XRAY to call and talk to a human being. And I want to give a huge thanks to the production team. To Will Romy, to Zeke Brunkhart, Casey Colton, Kate Cade, Julia Oppenheimer, Joy Palchik, Miranda Selinger, Ryder Sherwood, Jamie Zangwill, co-executive producer Emily Gilliland, and I'm Jefferson Smith. Thanks to original news pieces from Kate Kay, The Ashland Tidings, The Lund Report, Portland Business Journal, KATU, The Salem Reporter, Willamette Week, Pamplin Media, OPB, KGW, The Oregonian, The Statesman Journal, Seattle Times, Street Roots, The WNBA, and news partners Bridgeliner and The Portland Mercury. We can be together while we're apart. We're stronger together than we are apart. If you have story ideas, send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. Monday, we'll be back with another candidate for district attorney, 
Ethan Knight. I 